Good morning. I'm Arthur Herman, Senior Fellow at Hudson Institute, and I want to welcome all of you to the fourth in a series of Hudson conferences on energy and national security. Um, and I think it's going to be, given the distinguished panels that we've put together, I think it's going to be one of our most interesting and I hope also most provocative of the conferences that we've hosted so far. Uh, the theme of the conference, as I'm sure you know, is the geopolitics of America's shale revolution. Uh, with the uh, title, with just the slight hint of a qu question mark there of towards a new uh, global energy order. Um, it seems strange to be talking about oil production and natural gas and shale uh, reserves uh, in the midst of the terrible events that are unfolding in Brussels today, and yet they are not unrelated. Um, and this is something I'm going to come back to in a minute, but I think it's also one of the issues that I'm hoping that this conference will be able to address is the degree to which America's shale revolution could possibly constitute a second front in the war against terror and the ways in which energy and terrorism and public dis and, and civil disorder around the globe uh, may be in fact uh, closely related and may be in fact in some ways uh, a, a, a possible, possible solution to that problem. The America's shale revolution, this is a powerful and has been a powerful economic revolution. And the chart that I've put up here, which I wanted to have for us as a point of reference tells, I think, a very powerful story. The story of America's rise as a major swing producer in uh, petroleum gasoline uh, over the course of the 20th century, the sharp drop-off that then followed in the 1960s, uh, matched by an increasing uh, imports of oil from foreign sources, and then now, what has unfolded just within the last decade, decade and a half, is a reversal of that trend as America's uh, production rises and its foreign imports fall. This is, these are the statistics that's involved here in understanding the dynamics of America's shale revolution and the change that's taken place in terms of oil production and its relationship with foreign imports for the United States. But I think it's also important to realize that there's more than just an economic story here, there's also a cultural story. As I often stress, I think in the American collective memory, there are really three powerful images which are implanted in that uh, over the last century. Three powerful visual images which have shaped American culture and shaped America's understanding of how the world works and our place in it. One of those are the images of the attack at Pearl Harbor in, on December 7, 1941. The second, uh, is the second attack, uh, in a physical sense, of the attack on the Twin Towers on September 11, 2001. But the third image, the third image which has become implanted in minds, it was those images of gas lines in the 1973-1974 Arab oil embargo of people pushing cars to gas pumps to line up behind the dozens of other cars waiting for a few precious gallons of gasoline so they could resume normal life. 
the cultural, the oil shock of 1973 and 1974, I want to stress, I think was also a cultural shock for Americans and really for the Western industrialized world. Uh, it presented a sense of vulnerability in regard to uh, oil and uh, uh, fossil fuel resources. A sense that these resources were precious, were few, might even in fact be quickly disappearing, and that America's position was one of increasing vulnerability unless certain drastic steps were taken in terms of conservation, in terms of a shift to alternative uh, energy sources, and a range of other uh, policies which became then part of America's energy, prior energy priorities and energy policy. What has happened now with the shale revolution is that we've seen a reversal of that process. Instead of coming to understand America's energy picture of one of constantly diminishing resources, of vulnerability to foreign sources and to foreign powers that control the access to those resources, what we've seen now is, in fact, the United States now becoming a major source of energy abundance. Energy abundance, first of all, in terms of its crude oil and the ability of shale, the shale revolution to produce enormous quantities of that shale oil at increasingly lower cost and increasing lower prices. But also, at the same time, uh, the, second, the second wave of this shale revolution, and that's the, in the area of natural gas where the United States really does have the capacity for almost endless abundance in terms of access to natural gas reserves thanks to the shale revolution uh, and the technologies that have driven it forward and will continue, continue to drive it forward here. How is that going to now change not just America's perception of the world energy map and of the world energy order, as the United States has emerged as the leading producer of natural gas and also of, of oil, the single largest producer. But how will it also now change America's relationship with other countries? What will be the impact of having a United States as once again emerging as a swing producer, not only in global oil markets, but also having a dramatic impact on global natural gas markets and access to natural gas? And then thirdly, too, what role, from the point of view of technological innovation, what role is that shale revolution now going to play in promoting not just energy independence and energy security for the United States, which is now become, becoming increasing reality, but also energy security and independence for other countries with similar or, or, or closely related unconventional uh, oil and natural gas reserves through which, which the shale revolution can unlock and provide as major drivers for economic growth. Uh, how will the United States be perceived? What kind of impact will we have on the world? What kind of impact will this have on organizations which have until now exercised a monopolistic control over global oil markets, namely OPEC? What impact will it have on the role of the Middle East as having been for so long, over the past, what should we say, 40 years, really the center of the world's energy map. What happens when that center now shifts to the United States to North America? Those are the kinds of issues we're going to be talking about today. Those are the kinds of issues we're going to address and what kind of impact that will have for the future, not just of the United States' economy and global economies, but also perhaps for the geopolitical balance in the future. 
To do this, as I say, we've put together, I think, a very distinguished and interesting list of panelists. But the person who I thought should really kick off this conference and to talk about it as our keynote, to lay out the larger picture and what's involved in this process, um, is our keynote speaker for this morning, Mark Mills of the Manhattan Institute. Mark Mills is um, CEO of the Digital Power Group, which is a technocentric capital advisory group. Um, He's on the advisory board for the Notre Dame University's Riley Center for Science, Technology, and Values. Uh, he is, together with Robert Bryce, the one-two punch at uh, Manhattan Institute on energy policy, uh, bringing enormous, I think, sort of intellectual firepower to these kinds of issues and questions. He also happens to be the co-author of what I consider one of the three or four invaluable and indispensable books on energy policy and energy technology, the co-author with Peter Huber of The Bottomless Well, The Twilight of Fuel, The Virtue of Waste, and Why We Will Never Run Out of Energy. One of the most, I think, powerful books to read and to understand what's happening with the shale revolution in the broadest possible context, including even the moral context of what takes place there. And so I feel very pleased and very honored to be able to introduce our keynote speaker, Mark Mills. Excellent and provocative uh, beginning. And I do have to ask, though, you said one of three or four. Well, what, you didn't say the book? The <laughs> well, I've got, one, I've got one forthcoming, too. So oh, OK. Include that. I'll wait to read it, and then we'll. But thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, and, I, and I should also mention, by way of background, for those of you who don't know me, that the, the, the bias that I bring to this uh, issue comes from uh, my intersection in the city for uh, several decades, having spent uh, an earlier part of my career in the first, uh, the first term of the Reagan White House in the science office, where I was involved in energy issues and nonproliferation, in fact, in uh, missile defense, all of which remain issues of relevance today. And uh, so one can't es escape being a Washington resident not being deeply involved in politics and geopolitics. But the bias that I bring comes from my career in life as a physicist, where I, uh, while I, I am involved with and care deeply about politics and geopolitics, I begin and end with what physics and mother nature permits, which I'll, I think I'll, you'll see woven through my remarks this morning. Um, and, and of course, when we talk about geopolitics, I, I should also begin by noting that we're, we're in the shadow of the APAC meeting, of course, yesterday, where, where we had, uh, frankly, what amount to critical geopolitical speeches from all of the presidential candidates. So we had 18,000 people gathered to hear a geopolitical posture. And without regard to what you think about what each of them said, and all of them said something, although one of the candidates for the presidency, uh, Senator Sanders, wasn't present to deliver his remarks. Uh, he did deliver remarks in Utah, as some of you know, and it was uh, quite clear what, uh, what he thought about the geopolitical issues that were relevant to APAC. Without regard, though, to what anybody said, and I'm not taking a position on what anyone said, and I won't in my remarks, I want to lay a framework out for our uh, panelists and the subject today. I think a measure of the importance of geopolitics was visible in a singular fact yesterday. For the first time ever, first time ever, 
candidate Donald Trump delivered to the media in advance a written prepared speech. I think this says something about what everyone thinks about the seriousness of geopolitical matters. Again, I'm not taking a, a position on what anyone, in fact, had to say, but it is obvious, it's beyond obvious, that issues relating to Israel and the Middle East are interwoven with issues relating to petroleum, petroleum economics and petroleum politics. In fact, all the candidates have taken a position on shale, as all of us, I'm sure, know. Uh, whether those positions that have been articulated in the primary season are realized in the, in the form of policy in the years to come, whoever becomes president, that remains to be seen. We all who live in Washington understand that primary seasons generate a certain class of rhetoric on all parts that are sometimes followed through and sometimes not. And in fact, just to tie uh, the events of yesterday and today together, the president's historic visit to Cuba uh, has uh, an element of the energy geopolitics to it for a very simple reason. Uh, the Central and South American countries are, in fact, the primary and perhaps one of the most important markets for the export of U.S. natural gas and oil in the coming years. And those who have been supplying oil and natural gas to those markets, Venezuela, uh, prominent among them, have wielded uh, significant influence in the geopolitics of our hemisphere because of that, uh, th those dependencies. And as Arthur said, everyone in this room knows that the, the zeitgeist, if you like, of energy policy in America, the framework, the funding, the framework of what we consider energy policy in this country, they were set by, in fact, I would, I would argue was imprinted by the 73 Arab oil embargo. That has, that has generated the entire legislative, uh, intellectual paradigm for how we deal with not just oil, but energy in general ever since then. And it's worth noting, by the way, that the 73 Arab oil embargo, all of you may remember this, but some of you may have forgotten, it, what stimulated that embargo on the uh, part of the Arab states was a retaliation against the United States for the U.S. resupplying the Israeli army during the 1973 Arab-Israeli war, which was a countermeasure uh, on our part against the Soviet Union supplying the Arab armies. The historian of the State Department has written that that war and our role in it just resupplying the Israeli army brought the United States as close to a nuclear war with the Soviet Union as did the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is the sort of the, the framework of which oil and energy in the Middle East is still in play in the world today. Not much has changed. You know the French expression, plus que ça change, plus que ça la même chose. I mean, it's, the world is still the same. So let me, let me tell you how much it's the same. In fact, it's, it's not just the same, but it's more the same in this sense. Let me paint a picture of where the world is today compared to 1973 with respect to oil. Although I'm going to speak principally about oil, what I'm going to say is relevant to natural gas, of course, as well, because the shale revolution, as Arthur ably pointed out, is a revolution relating to the hydrocarbons, the hydrocarbon cousins, if you like, of oil and natural gas. So in 1973, when the oil, oil embargo shocked the world and shocked the United States and reset geopolitics for a half century, at that time, a third of the world's GDP was involved in trade. Today, 60% of the world's GDP is involved in trade. Since 1973, Marine shipping, which comprises 90% of all the goods and materials that are traded in the world, move by ship. Marine shipments have increased 300%. Air travel has increased 
700% since then. Automobile travel, which is directly relevant to the discussion today, globally has increased 300% since then. And this is the singular fact that's critical to the shale revolution and to the geopolitics. Oil fuels 95% of all of the machines that move all the goods and people in the world today. It did then, it still does today. I mean, that state of affairs, this, this, the centrality of uh, oil in transportation, has in, engendered a kind of odd response in many parts of the world, particularly Europe and the United States. It's not been a monomaniacal drive to find more oil, but to find ways to stop using oil and to find alternatives for oil. So, look, this, this reality that we've spent 50 years almost looking for alternatives to oil, looking for ways to use less oil, but the world now uses more oil, and the single fact is that there are no alternatives to oil at the scale and price that the world needs yet, despite hundreds of billions of dollars spent on subsidies and research, and despite exhortations for things like moonshots. There is no substitute today for oil at the price and the scale the world needs. Full stop, period. This reality informs geopolitics in an important way. In fact, I'm going to digress briefly to amplify this fact for the simple reason that there are dangerous economic, social, and geopolitical consequences from believing in fictions and aspirational policies that relate to the physics of energy and oil. It doesn't take long to unbundle why we are where we are and why we'll stay where we are for, in fact, decades yet, and for all practical purposes. In political terms, decades is forever. Policymakers don't think in terms of decades. Think tank people sometimes do. Policymakers think in terms of years at best, sometimes months. So let's talk about briefly how permanent the state of criticality is for oil. It is really only two, you can do this in a very simple way. Let's start with biofuels. And it's easy to unravel what the prospects are for biofuels displacing oil by just looking at a single fact set. In the United States, as you all know, today, we devote about 40% of the American corn crop to distilling it into ethanol for transportation. And today, about 5% of America's transportation needs are met with ethanol, using 40% of our grain. By the way, you, you probably know this, but at the time of the American Revolution, about 40% of the grain was used for transportation as well. It was to feed horses. And we moved away from that dependency on grain for transportation and re returned to it. But even if every single kernel of corn was used to fuel cars, it would not move the meter in the United States or globally. Every oil exporting nation knows that fact. Biodiesel and other forms of biological fuels have even a smaller level of importance in terms of the displacement of oil at prices and scales that the world needs. And then there are windmills, which are frankly the most politically popular form of alternative energy in some way, shape, or form. In fact, they're politically popular because they are amongst the whole pantheon of the so-called multitude of choices, the cheapest. But here's a, a, a fact set for you to consider with respect to windmills, because obviously running cars and airplane windmills is difficult. But here's the two fact sets that you need to keep in, in, in mind, that they're derived from the physics of these energy sources. The cost of a barrel equivalent of energy from a windmill is 300% higher than the cost of a barrel shale oil. 300% higher. To make that barrel equivalent of energy useful for transportation, we have to store it, as you all know, self-evidently, in batteries. 
So here's the fact that you need to know. It takes 20,000 pounds of Tesla-class batteries to store one barrel equivalent of energy from a windmill. 20,000 pounds worth. Even if batteries get twice as good or three times as good as they are today, which is not on any roadmap for the production of any batteries at scale, even if they get two to three times better, it still won't move the meter in terms of displacing oil in global transportation. So the big picture number you want to keep in mind is, is this singular fact with respect to oil, is that the world uses four million barrels of oil every hour of every day. To put that sort of in economic context, if we really want to do this displacement with windmills, we'd have to build $100 trillion, with a T, $100 trillion of wind turbines and batteries. It's not counting the distribution systems or transmission lines in order to produce that much and deliver that much energy into markets. Another big picture reality to think about with respect to oil are these fact sets. There are about 10 trillion ground miles driven each year in the world in cars and trucks, and 3 trillion passenger air miles flown every year in the world in aircraft. As emerging markets grow, and they are growing, they may grow more slowly, and markets panic when growth slows, not when growth collapses, but markets actually panic when growth slows. It's interesting, we're in a, in a, in a slightly lower growth mode for oil demand. The key words here are not a decrease in oil demand, a slightly lower growth mode for oil demand this year because China has somewhat slowed down. So IEA expects world oil demand to grow this year by a mere million to a million and a half barrels of oil per day. A, a mere million to a million and a half barrels of oil per day. This is the entire output of the Bach and shale field. Per year increase during a slow year. That 10 trillion ground miles driven a year in oil-fired vehicles and 3 trillion air passenger miles flown each year in aircraft, those markets will grow as the emerging markets become bigger, have more wealth. In fact, every forecast sees that the demand for ground miles and air miles roughly doubling in the next decade, dec two decades and two decades and a half. So those two markets individually and independently represent about 10 million barrels per oil per day of new demand for fuel to fuel both those markets of new demand. We should hope, in fact, we should pray, that we'll find alternatives to supply some significant share of this new demand because this scale of additional demand on the world markets is unprecedented in history. So you got, but still, we have a lot of wishful thinking, right? We have, in fact, this phrase to which we can credit an oil man, or you know, Bush 43, this idea of an addiction to oil is, is a silly phrase, I'm embarrassed to say. It's saying that human beings are addicted to oxygen and food. Oil is critical to the existence and functioning of modern society. But oil, because of that criticality, so all of you know this, that oil is weaponized through the so this form of a gray warfare of influence and intimidation, entanglements. So I want to spend just one or two minutes talking about what those entanglements look like and how geopolitics of oil so inter intertwine into what uh, global affairs. Now, since the sanctions were lifted in Iran, all of you have doubtless followed this, uh, the country has been moving at a pretty, pretty impressive pace to re-entangle its economy with the world. In fact, they already are successfully re-entangling their economy with the world, and they will be very successful at doing that, I would predict, which will make the reimposition of sanctions without regard to what any president would like to do or say that they would do in a policy speech. It'll make the reimposition of sanctions far more difficult in the future than it is, has been in the past. 
So you know what Iranian negotiators have been doing, right? They've been using barter-type deals to, uh, to uh, ship oil to other countries by Iran investing in the refineries in those countries, from Brazil to India. They just signed a 10-year, $600 billion oil export agreement with China. And with their oil wealth unfrozen, as you know, Iran placed one of the biggest orders ever to Airbus. They ordered 118 aircraft, and it kept alive the A380 program single-handedly. A $25 billion order. It's kind of interesting, just as a technological aside, that the, those 118 aircraft will consume over their operating life $20 billion worth of oil. Russia, of course, is a player in this market. They're one of the three big producers on the, on the planet, along with the Middle East and the United States. They've signed a $30 billion deal with, with oil and gas with China. Uh, the Russian, Russian oil firms have... Uh, promised to invest $18 billion in Venezuela's oil fields. Russia does not need Venezuelan oil. So obviously their interest in investments in the Venezuelan oil fields relate to the geopolitics of the region, not to Russia's firms needing access to their oil. In fact, Russia, as you doubtless know, has sold about $3 billion in arms uh, in recent years to Venezuela. <clears throat> Russia is um, famously or infamously a master at the chess game of geopolitics. Uh, there's another uh, piece today in the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal about uh, Putin's uh, geopolitical successes in Syria and around the world. Not praise, just noting it. Uh, Russia now has a major base in the Middle East for the first time in a half a century. Uh, bases in the Middle East are there, as I will say again, and as Arthur pointed out at the beginning, they're there almost entirely because of the oil. Interests in the Middle East are driven and pivot around oil at all levels, and always, in fact, it has been widely reported and it's been well known that ISIS gets about $600 million a year from a sophisticated oil operation. In fact, ISIS has actually has a sophisticated recruitment program for petroleum engineers, of all things. Their, their, their operation is that sophisticated with respect to their need for the money from oil. I could... We could spend, in fact, the whole day talking about examples of this, you know, this deep interconnectivity between oil and geopolitics and world affairs. Again, because the reason the interconnectivity is so critical is because oil itself is a critical economic commodity for the survival of the entire structure of civilization as we know it today. It is, when you look at all these issues, it makes one want to think of the trivial expression, it's the same old, same old. Not much has changed in terms of these interconnectivities and the gray warfare that takes place with respect to oil. But there is one new thing, as Arthur pointed out. The new thing is shale. It was totally unexpected. It was unplanned. In the history of the oil industry, this is an important, this, this graph that Arthur had showed up, it's important to recognize this singular fact. There has never been, in the history of the oil industry, there has never been that much new oil produced that fast, anywhere, at any time. And it shocked the world. That's what rocked the markets. That's the singular and primary reason that oil prices collapsed from the heights they were at. Yes, there are other contributing factors, slightly slower growth. The contribution of the Saudis decided that they wanted to add supply to an oversupplied world to drive prices even lower. All those were factors, but the trigger was this shocking increase with the United States being the source of three quarters of all the net new additions of petroleum supply to the world in the last five or six years. This is a total reversal. It's an utter and complete reversal of America's geopolitical posture. 
going from, from being a half century of operating like and feel like a supplicant state with the potential to be a state, and I emphasize with the potential, because it hasn't been exercised yet, to be a state with lasting influence in ge uh, petroleum geopolitics. I mean, obviously, you know, that if you looked at the demand curve that I just described with the net increase in oil demand going into the future for transportation, the go-to sources of marginal new supply for oil were assumed to have been the Middle East and Russia for essentially all the usefully foreseeable future until now. That obviously changes the game. The Saudi, Saudi's oil minister, as, as some of you have, may have seen last month at the Houston Sierra Conference, for the first time essentially publicly acknowledged that the geopolitics of oil have permanently changed, not temporarily changed. Look, I, I understand why policymakers are having trouble adjusting to this uh, new reality. We've spent four decades imprinted with this idea of energy independence, you know, through conservation and trying to find alternatives to oil. That's the wrong mindset. The issue of independence is completely, completely backwards with respect to what the United States has as an opportunity. We have the opportunity for energy influence. Influence is a very different thing and has tremendous relevance in geopolitics. You know that in Moscow and in Tehran, they understand what's going on. This is what, this is what, this is what they know. They know that the geophysical resource base of shale hydrocarbons in the United States is Saudi scale. They know that fact. It's a fact. They also know that shale technology keeps getting better, and it's getting better rapidly. For those of you who follow this, last year, during a down market, one of the most difficult times of the shale industry, the cost to operate a shale rig, that is, cost in terms that matter, capex in, dollars in per unit of energy out, cost went down 40%. And the output per rig, the productivity of a rig, increased 50%, the average rig, in one year. There is no other part of the oil and gas business where those kinds of trajectories of cost changes and productivity gains happen, nor have they ever happened before in the history of hydrocarbons in the, in the free world or the non-free world. Here's the most important part of the shale industry that bothers the analysts in the Middle East and in Russia. It has been for almost a half century that the petroleum industry is one of oligarchs monarchs, potentates, a handful of mega corporations that are private who can by default or in fact collaborate or collude on setting prices. The shale industry is created by and operated by thousands of small and independent companies. Some of them are big. Even the biggest of the shale companies are small by oil major standards and small by national oil company standards. In fact, they're tiny by national oil company standards. So we have, instead of a small handful, almost of companies you can count on two hands, or two sets of hands, about two dozen companies in the world, that control 70% of the known conventional reserves, who for decades have been able to collaborate by default or by in fact, now facing the prospect of competing against thousands, thousands of American entrepreneurs and companies in the world's most liquid and largest capital market. This is not a market that's amenable to backdoor agreements, collusions, or price fixing. It's a very competitive, dynamic American market. Yes, I know uh, prices have done damage to the shale industry. Obviously, at lower prices, it's been, for some companies, ruinous. Some have gone into bankruptcy. In fact, at least a third of the shale companies in the United States are financially stressed. Maybe that many 
actually go bankrupt or get acquired in the coming year. This is the defining year, 2016, as the hedges come off many of these oil companies and they're facing the real price of oil that they haven't had to face for a couple of years. For the oligarchs and potentates, uh, I think they're smart enough to know this is not a good sign for them. I'll tell you why it's not a good sign for them. Because there are hundreds of billions of dollars, not a few million dollars, of private capital lined up in the unkind vernacular, vulture capitalists, waiting to scoop up generational buying opportunities in the shale fields of the United States. I'll just give you an example of uh, what's going on in the financial markets. And again, if you follow this, you know this. Last year, when prices were ruinously low, the public shale companies were able to raise $18 billion in public markets offering new stock at ruinously low prices. So far this year, the public shale companies in the United States have raised another $8 billion in public markets. The most successful IPO so far in 2016 is what's called a SPAC. For those of you who, who follow financial markets, this is a special purpose corporation. What it means is that you take public a company that has no assets, you're raising money from other people on a promise to do something. If you don't do the something you've defined, you have to give the money back. Um, SPACs are shell companies raised by people who have an idea, who are trustworthy, or have a vision. The SPAC I'm talking about was started by uh, uh, the founder of EOG, which is one of the great shell companies in the country. He's no longer involved in, in uh, it's Mark Papa. Uh, he raised a SPAC, raised a shell company on the promise to buy up other shell companies at bargain basement prices. He raised, uh, wanted to raise $400 million. He was oversubscribed and raised $450 million. So what, all the, what, what, what do these investors all believe? What are, they, what are they thinking? Why are they putting billions of dollars into so-called bankrupt uh, shale fields, which have been, you know, the, the press, the media, have been replete with stories about the permanent damage to the U.S. shale industry because of low prices? Well, this is what they believe. They're banking on two facts. First, the one I told you at the outset, oil is central to the survival and growth of the world, period, full stop. Second, oil is a cyclical commodity. When prices are low, they go up. When prices are high, they go down. Oil has not sustained a price of over $100 a barrel for more than a few years, for more than three times in 150 years in inflation adjusted dollars. I made a forecast in 2014 in a public bet with a former ambassador to Russia who said in May of that year, that oil would never go below $100 a barrel ever again in history because he was one of these people who is A, a Malthusian at heart, and B, a believer that it had to be high in order to stimulate the alternatives petroleum that he so loved. I took the bet. I don't normally take bets in short terms. I said, I think the oil will go below $100 a barrel this year because it can't sustain a $120 price. In fact, I'll spot you 80 bucks. I think it'll go below 80 before the year's out because markets will get oversupplied. And as I've told my friends in the oil business in an unkind way, that when oil is over $100 a barrel, morons can make money in oil. It's not hard to produce lots of oil at $100 a barrel. It's hard to produce oil and make a profit at 30 Huge swaths of America's oil fields are profitable at $30 a barrel and will become, those that aren't profitable today will be profitable in the future at $30 a barrel because of technology. We know that to be true because oil in the shell was not accessible at any price until relatively recently, and it certainly wasn't accessible at prices that were reasonably uh, useful until the maturation of technologies that have been foolishly labeled fracking. Engineers are really good at creating frightening labels. It should be called smart drilling, 
because we have become smart enough not to drill dry holes, to drill horizontally using sensors and subsurface imaging, and then finally to hydraulic, hydra hydraulically fracture the shale to cause it to release what's called source rock. But it's called fracking, which makes it a useful, frightening appellation for raising concerns about a shocking new technology. But the investors do know, and the Saudis know, and the, the Russians know, that the reality is that shale has changed the game. The United States has the capacity, if it so chooses to adopt it, to move into a sense of, uh, from subservience, if you like, both in oil and natural gas, into uh, influence on global markets. So, but we need reform to, to, to make this happen. This is not going to happen uh, passively. Yes, Congress passed legislation to finally revoke a, uh, a law banning exports of hydrocarbons, which I would have to say, as a non-lawyer, uh, is, I thought, was, when it was passed, was foundationally not only antithetical to the U.S. Uh, mindset, but illegal against World Trade Organization precepts. We can't ban the export of a product like that, but we did. There was no pushback on it for decades because we thought oil was running out. Perhaps at least one good thing will come of the Shell Revolution. We can finally put to bed this goofy, Malthusian idea that we're running out of oil. What I think should happen, and this is what I think we, we could expect to, to possibly happen with the next president, is possible. Perhaps there will be trade missions to our allies to offer to form partnerships to secure the export of U.S. natural gas and oil to those countries, not to passively let it happen, but to form partnerships in order to facilitate it and accelerate it. You can also consider exploration of legislation that can either remove barriers or accelerate the creation of the infrastructure necessary for massive exports. Here's the last thought I want to leave with you in terms of the geopolitics and the big picture. So the United States is one of five major economic regions of the world. You know what the five are. The North America, the European Union, China, Japan, and India, those five regions. Those five regions comprise almost 80% of the world's GDP. So they matter. And they will comprise about 80% or more of the world's GDP for the foreseeable future, for the future that matters. Of those five regions, four of them are enormous net importers of oil and gas. Only one of them is not, North America. North America already is 95% self-sufficient in energy and is on track to becoming, as a region, a net exporter. In fact, the only thing that that region for which the region is a net importer is still for petroleum. About 15% of the petroleum consumed in North America is still imported. It is clearly possible, as Harold Hamm said recently, remember what he said in a, uh, it's a great interview if you didn't see it last month in, in uh, Forbes. He said, we can do it again. It was his line. We can do it. But he meant the it was doubling America's oil production. But we can do it again. And it doesn't take much of a price. It takes, and this is again what the Saudis know, and what they know in Tehran, and what they know in Riyadh. It doesn't take much of a sustained price bump to cause a shale 2.0 boom to take place in the United States shale fields. My, my own view on this, if I were going to put a price benchmark in the sand, is that if we stay over $40 a barrel on a sustained basis, for several more months, you will start to see shale 2.0 begin. And the United States has the capacity to double it again, the physical infrastructure and geophysical capacity to do that. This would utterly rock the world if we could export these resources. You don't have to export huge quantities to change the game. Remember, oil prices 
and geopolitics are swing with a plus or minus one or two million barrels per day of oil of excess or undersupply. Right? We oversupplied the world by four million barrels per day. That's why the chaos was put in place in economic terms and also in geopolitical terms. We could oversupply the world again. If we can oversupply the world again and still make a profit, which I believe is affirmatively the case for the majority of shale companies in the United States in the coming decades, this is deeply disruptive in ways that are unprecedented. But let me finish with this observation. For those of you who have been reading and following this, you know that the, the line has been that the destruction of oil prices, and I think it's essentially a permanent destruction. We now face a world of serial oil and gas gluts, for as far as the eye can see, which means we'll be oscillating before, between prices will cycle, but they will cycle in a lower band than they have for a long time in history. We, we will return to the cyclicality of oil prices the way they looked in the first oil era that began in the late 1800s and ended roughly World War II. This has caused an extraordinary wealth transfer. In fact, some pundits have called this the largest wealth transfer in history. Trillions of dollars have been denied to the kleptocrats, the monarchs, and the oligarchs. Trillions of dollars. But in my view, and that is true, of course, but in my view, it's the proximate reason for the price collapse that is disruptive. It is the United States shale technology. In fact, it is disruptive in this sense. It's, I think it's not just the biggest wealth transfer in history. It is the biggest transfer in geopolitical power since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Thank you. Would you want me to take some?